Today's sermon comes from Nehemiah 5. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's taxes on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother, and I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people." Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. In his TED Talk that was titled The Paradox of Choice, secular psychologist Barry Schwartz said that we all live by an unspoken but official dogma, and it's this, that you maximize your happiness by maximizing your individual freedom. And then he said, you maximize your individual freedom by maximizing your choices. And he started talking about the, at his local supermarket, the, the choice of the 175 different salad dressings that he could choose from on the shelf. But he went on to say, we actually wake up every morning and even choose our identity. That even in this day and age, and especially in this day and age with social media, that you can almost recreate yourself hour by hour, minute by minute, day by day that there's this, this choice. And then he went on to, he had this uh, fishbowl with two fish swimming in it. And he said this, the truth of the matter is that if you shatter the fishbowl, 
so that everything is possible, you don't have freedom. You have paralysis. If you shatter this fishbowl so that everything is possible, you actually decrease satisfaction. Everybody needs a fishbowl. The absence of some metaphorical fishbowl is a recipe for misery and I suspect disaster. He's right on. We live in a world, we live in a culture that values freedom. And it values a specific kind of freedom and that is a freedom without any constraints, a freedom without any boundaries. But the question you have to ask, is that actually possible? Is it possible to experience freedom without constraints or boundaries? Are we enslaved though we may not even know it? And if we are enslaved, then how do we find freedom from our slavery? Those are the questions we're going to answer. Let's start with the, are we enslaved? And maybe not even know it. We're going to start there and look at the enslaving nature of sin. At the beginning of chapter 5, there's a great outcry from the people. Not just the people, but their wives. There's this great outcry. Well, what's the problem? What's the trouble? Why is there an outcry? What you're going to see here is there's, there's four snowballing reasons for the trouble that they find themselves in. Reason number one, look at verse two. Let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. The demands of this rebuilding of the wall were so great that all those uh, farmers from the country had gathered in Jerusalem to rebuild the wall and they were they were demanded to stay there and to sleep there so they couldn't farm. They couldn't produce grain, which meant they had to buy grain to feed themselves because they couldn't produce it on their farms because they were working on the wall. And that led to snowballing reason number two for the trouble. Look at verse three. We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. So now they're having to actually mortgage their field and mortgage their houses to have money to buy grain. In addition, reason number three, look at verse four. We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. So now they didn't have enough money to pay the royal tax on their estates. So they go into debt, they borrow, they go into debt to pay the tax. And then that leads to snowballing reason number four for their trouble, and this is the shocking one. Look at verse five. We are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. They were selling their children into slavery to pay off their debt. Now you see how drastic a situation this is. Selling their kids into slavery, that's a form of trafficking. Okay, we talk about trafficking, oftentimes sex trafficking, but there's labor trafficking. This is a form of it. They're selling their kids off, right? To work so they can pay off their debt. Now here's the most shocking part of it all. You say, who are they enslaved to? That was causing them to have to sell their children to work, to pay off debt. That's the most shocking part of this. It wasn't the Persians. 
It wasn't the governors surrounding Judah, like Sanballat and Tobiah, who we've seen causing all kinds of trouble and all kinds of resistance. It was their own people. Do you read that in verse one? They were being enslaved by their Jewish brothers. That the nobles and the officials were enslaving their own people. This was happening within Israel. We're not talking about the enemies at this point. It's within the Old Testament church. This is happening. They're enslaved and they're enslaving others. Enslaved and enslaving others. Now you say, you may say, I don't get it. I'm not having to sell my child or put my child into forced labor to pay off my debt. Now you may not be doing that. You probably are. But where does this enslaved and enslaving others manifest itself today? You ever been to a youth sporting event? I'm hearing chuckles. I think you know where I'm going. But been to a youth sporting event and watched parents ride their kids really hard on the field? You know, kid makes a mistake and father, you know, brings them over to the sideline and just lets them have it and, and shames him into performing better. You say, what's going on there? Well, most of the time, here's what's going on. Dad is living vicariously through his son, right? To get to the, to get the success that he so desperately needs at his heart, in his heart level. And if you've ever watched that unfold, if you watch the whole game, normally what you see is this in that extreme situation. When you watch the child out there playing, it becomes very evident that that child does not want to be on the field. And so what you have is a dad enslaved or addicted to success, right, using his child to try to feed his addiction to success. Or parents, have you ever disciplined your child out of anger? Have you ever disciplined your child out of anger because they're interrupting your television watching or your internet browsing or your nap time? Okay. Giving you a small example here, but I want you to see it. Right? At that moment, your, 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 your need, your idolatrous need for comfort, for pleasure, comes at the expense of your child, right? That we're enslaved and enslaving others. Or just go to the general relationship, whether it's a friendship, whether it's a dating relationship, a boyfriend, girlfriend, or maybe even a marriage where there's an abusive situation. Physical abuse, maybe predominantly verbal abuse. What's happening there? Well, the person that's verbally abusing the other and enslaving that person because someone that's a, a subject to abuse usually doesn't, they're, they're enslaved and they don't know how to get out of it. What's happening there? Well, there's one person that's enslaved to some, something other than God and now turning into a slave driver of the other person. Happens in relationships all the time. We're enslaved and we enslave others. What you see here is that sin and idolatry are enslaving and if you're not sufficiently depressed at this point, let me depress you some more before we get to the good news. Look at verse five. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men 
have our fields and our vineyards. So these poor farming families are enslaved, in debt, mortgaging their fields, selling their children into forced labor to pay off the debt, and they can't get out of it because these nobles and officials own their fields. They're helpless. With these nobles and officials acting as predatory lenders within Israel, within the church, demanding what they don't have to give. And they have no power to free themselves. And that is the truth about sin and idolatry, is that you cannot free yourself. You have no power to free yourself from the grip of idolatry. It is absolutely enslaving. And yet we try. We try to maintain control of our lives. We try to free ourselves and maintain control, usually by giving ourselves to something, to living for something, whether it's money, whether it's power, comfort, approval, romance, whatever it may be, career, right? We give ourselves to other things thinking that we have control of our lives. The problem is, is that when we give ourselves to anything but God, it will always, always, always enslave. And you can't get out. David Foster Wallace, not long before his suicide, spoke these words to the 2005 graduating class of Kenyon College. Listen to this. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power. You will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is they're unconscious. They are default settings. So if these are default settings, and you, know, you have no power to free yourself, then who frees you and how does he do it? Look at verse six. Nehemiah says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. Nehemiah hears the plight of the people and what's happening and he gets angry. That's a good thing. Then verse seven. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. 
and I held a great assembly against them. Nehemiah brings a lawsuit against them. That's what's happening here. He gathers this great assembly and he brings charges against the nobles and the officials. Nehemiah steps in as a powerful judge in this situation. There's a ton of similarities between this account and the account we read in John chapter two, when Jesus Christ enters the temple, overturns the tables of the money changers and drives out the people that were selling animals for sacrifice. In Nehemiah, you've got the officials taking advantage of people who are rebuilding the wall so that God can be worshiped. In John chapter two, you have people taking advantage of those who are coming to offer sacrifice in worship of God. In both situations, people are being taken advantage of. And in John two, Jesus gets righteously angry. And he turns over the table. And he drives out the money changers. Why does he get so angry? Why does Nehemiah get so angry? Because at the heart of sin, at the heart of sin is consumption. At the heart of sin is self-consumption. It's a consumer mindset. It's that everybody exists for me to consume. It's what ruined God's good world and it's what is ruining God's good world. So Jesus gets angry. But when you read John 2, when he clears out the temple, didn't solve the problem. It explained what the problem was. It illustrated what the problem was. It called out the problem. But I guarantee those money changers and those people selling the animals, they probably found somewhere else to do it or they were back in the temple at some time later. Almost like a pack of, you know, like a bunch of vultures or birds that are feeding on roadkill, right? You can go shoo them away. What happens when you walk away? They're back, right? Nehemiah enters the situation as a powerful judge. He calls out the sin. He calls out the sin so that the people could be rescued. Jesus enters the, the, the temple in John, in John 2, calls out the problem, drives them out. The question is, in Nehemiah, although he does call out the sin and he calls them to repentance, there's something deeper in chapter five, that is at the center of how the people are actually set free. What actually sets them free? What we see is that Nehemiah enters as a powerful judge, but there's more to it. How does he actually free the people from their slavery? Look at verse 14. In verse 14, we learn that during Nehemiah's 12-year tenure as governor of Judah, it says he never ate the food allowance of the governor. Now, what does that mean? A governor collected taxes for the central treasury and a governor also collected taxes for their own treasury out of which the food allowance would come. And that was to, you know, as a governor, you're hosting people, you're, you're, you're constantly having meals. That's what governors do. Nehemiah refused to collect this tax for his food allowance. In fact, it says his servants, rather than going out to collect tax from the people, he sent his servants to go build the wall. Nehemiah effectively took a pay cut. He effectively took a pay cut. 
to not lay this financial burden on the people. And on top of that, look at verse 18. We learn that he fed the 150 men at his table out of his own expense instead of paying for it out of the food allowance, which he didn't collect. It'd be, it would be like you refusing your meals and entertainment budget for the, the corporation or your vocation that you work for that is there for you to take clients out. But you still take clients out and you pay for it out of your own expense. That's what Nehemiah's doing here. That he's freeing these people from their debt by taking on debt himself. He's losing money. Nehemiah, the governor, is, is becoming poorer so that the people can become richer. Nehemiah is taking on their debt so that they can be freed. What a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ and what he does for us. That Jesus Christ used his power to serve and not be served. Same thing here. Nehemiah used his power to serve the people, not to be served by the people. And Jesus Christ has done the same thing. That Jesus, who was rich, became poor. So that we who are poor and enslaved and indebted to sin could be freed and set free from that debt to sin. In the movie, Three Seasons, it's a, it's a movie that has a series of stories in, in it about life in post-war Vietnam. And one of the stories is about a man named Hai. He's a, he's a cyclo driver. And, and about a woman whose name is Lon, and she's a beautiful prostitute. And both High and Lon have deep, unfulfilled desires. High is in love with Lon. But Lon works in grinding poverty as a prostitute, always longing to, to one day be able to live in the beautiful world where she works, in the very nice hotels. And, and she thinks that through prostitution that she can, she can make enough money to get out of it. But she never does. Because the more she does it and the more she makes it, just it brutally enslaves her. And then one day, High enters a cyclo. It's a type of bicycle, a cyclo race. And he wins the race and he wins the top prize. And with the prize money, he buys the hotel room and he pays Lon's prostitution fee. And he takes her up there into the shock of everyone who's watching the movie. He says he simply wants to watch her fall asleep. He uses his power and his wealth to serve her and not to use her. And initially, she's undone by it. She, she feels like he's trying to control her in some way. And when she finally realizes that he's just using his power to serve her and not use her, it's transforming she realizes she can't go back to this life of prostitution. Jesus uses his power, has used his power and wealth to serve us and to free us from the awful enslavement that we're in under sin. 
question is, how do we experience that freedom that Christ brings? How do we experience that freedom? How do we experience his redemption of buying us out of slavery? We experience through experience it through the joy of repentance. The joy of repentance. After Nehemiah calls out the officials and the nobles for oppressing the people, he tells them to return them, return to them their fields, their houses, their vineyards, return to them the interest that you've been exacting from them. And what do they say? What do the nobles and officials say in verse 12? We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And then it says, Nehemiah called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. Now, why did Nehemiah call in the priests in the middle of this act of repentance? It was because this wasn't just a restoration of justice. This wasn't just two parties reconciling. That this was a covenant renewal between the people and their Lord. And we see this throughout the scriptures. For example, when King David consumes Bathsheba, commits adultery with her, murders her husband, and by Nathan the prophet, who calls him out, is convicted of it, what does David say in Psalm 51? He says, against you, you only, God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David's horrific sin was against Bathsheba, but his, it was a horrific sin against God. Think about in the Gospels. Think about when Jesus says, what you have done to the least of these brothers of mine, you have done to me. Or what you have not done to the least of these brothers of mine, you have not done to me. Right? What is Jesus saying there? That when you sin horizontally against each other, you sin against me. You say, how's that? What's the connection there? Think of the Ten Commandments. The last six of the Ten Commandments are horizontal commands of how we're to treat one another. You cannot break one of those last six commandments without first breaking the first commandment, which is you shall have no other gods before me. That when you break one of those last commandments, which is horizontal against each other, that there is some other God or some other idol or some other thing that is before the living God. And as I said, any God or any idol or anything outside of the living God that you live for will enslave you and cause you to enslave others and consume them rather than love them. And so you see the connection there. When we repent, we don't just repent of how we've hurt someone. We repent of the idol that we're serving that caused us to hurt them and not love them, to consume them and not give to them. And so repentance is, it's a God-centered repentance. That's why Nehemiah calls in the priests because he wants these nobles and officials to realize this is not just about you nobles and officials reconciling with the poor families that you've oppressed. No, you need to reconcile with God. You need to be reconciled with God who you have sinned against. And so I, I, I exhort you, I challenge you, 
I encourage you that when you find yourself sinning against each other, to do the hard work to say, what have I begun to serve other than God that has me enslaved and hurting somebody else? It could be money. It can be career. It can be approval. It can be comfort. It can be pleasure. There's a myriad of things that we can serve that enslave us and cause us to hurt others. It's this godly, it's, it's, yes, it's horizontal forgiveness and repentance, but it's, it's the godly repentance and godly sorrow that we've put another God or another idol before him that is what re- restores the joy of salvation to us. It's what restores the joy of our salvation. Nehemiah, if you look at verse 13, after the, the, the nobles and officials say, yes, we'll return the fields, we'll do as you say. And then in verse 13, Nehemiah pronounces a curse on those who don't keep the promise they made. He says he shakes out the fold of his garment. What is that? Well, in those days, the folds in the garment is where people held their belongings. And so Nehemiah literally shakes out the fold of his garment. He he shakes everything out to say, if you don't keep your promise, this is what's gonna happen to you. You're gonna lose everything. Now, we stand at a different time in redemptive history. The covenantal curses that are on our failures have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ was shaken out for our failure to live up to what God has demanded of us. Jesus Christ was shaken out. He lost everything. He was rich. He became poor. He became a curse for us when he hung on the cross. And so when, when, when your repentance, not just horizontally when you've hurt someone, but when you can identify, oh God, I've put my pleasure on the throne and I'm repenting of that. Father, forgive me for putting pleasure on the throne. I repent of that and I turn to you, I turn to Christ, right? When you do that and then you're met with the assurance of pardon, we do it every, every moment in this service, the assurance of forgiveness the assurance that Jesus was the curse for you, that Jesus was the curse when for putting the, the pleasure, the comfort, money, whatever it is, whatever act of idolatry, oh, it restores joy. And it produces what we see at the end of verse 13. It says, and all the assembly. Now you understand, that's everyone. That's the nobles, the officials, the poor farming families, that's the offender and the offended, the oppressor and the oppressed, they're all standing together in the great assembly. And they said, amen, and they praised the Lord. You run that moment through to the end of the scriptures in Revelation, you see the culmination of that moment completely fulfilled and permanently becoming a reality in Revelation chapter seven, where it says a great multitude, like the great assembly in Nehemiah five, but this time from every nation, tribe, people, and language. So now it's not just the Jews, it's, it's, it's all nations have gathered, clothed in white robes, it says, meaning pure, forgiven, assured of forgiveness, crying with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God 
falling on their faces before the throne, worshiping God and saying, amen. So you see there in Nehemiah 5, the great assembly of repentance and the joy that comes from that fulfilled all the way to Revelation 7. That's where we're headed, but we experience it now through faith in Christ. While waiting in a Nazi prison cell in 1943, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote these words. He penned these words to a friend. He said, a prison cell in which one waits, hopes, does various unessential things is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom has to be opened from the outside. Not long after he penned those words, the Nazis executed him. But Bonhoeffer was right. That our freedom comes from the door being opened on the outside by Jesus Christ. We don't open the door to our own freedom. We are enslaved. We're oppressed. But Jesus Christ comes through his death and resurrection and opens the door to freedom Not a freedom without constraints, but a freedom with the right constraints. Freedom with the right constraints now in relationship with Jesus, who is our powerful judge and our generous redeemer. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we all feel the chains deeply in our own hearts from those things and those people that we, we functionally worship. As was said earlier in the service, the things that we look to to bring deep satisfaction to our lives, deep sense of purpose, we look to those things and they don't only not deliver, but they enslave us and they turn us into slave drivers of others. Oh, Father, would you forgive us? We together, as a community, right now, we repent. And we, return, we, we re, repent and turn from those things that we have trusted in. We turn to you, Jesus. And we are overwhelmed by your grace. That you were rich and you became poor that you spent everything, that you lost everything to rescue us, to free us from that awful bondage and to bring us into union and relationship with you where we find freedom and we find the power to not consume others, but to love others and to give to others and to be about the other's good. Fathers, we continue to worship. Would we rest and reflect on how deep your love is for us and what you have done through Jesus to free us. We pray this all in Christ's name, amen.